0: This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. Hi, this is Caitlin from Stories of Women in Neuroscience, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Katerina Schmack, a clinical group leader at the Francis Crick Institute in London. Katerina, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So, we generally like to start these interviews off by asking, how did you first become interested in studying the brain?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, growing up in a small city in Germany, um, nothing really pointed towards a career in science. I had diverse interests, I liked math and, and science, and but I was also very much into art and uh, I liked reading books. And so towards the end of high school, I think I had the idea that what I wanted to be is some kind of uh, bohemian intellectual. So <laughs> I basically, imagined myself living in a once glamorous now slightly rundown apartment in a big city um, surrounded by interesting people with whom i would have endless discussions and in between i would produce some kind of intellectual product maybe writing books or something Um, and obviously there wasn't a clear path towards towards this career so Funnily enough, I defaulted to med school. Um, I think um, it was kind of an obvious choice because I had good grades and that's what you did with good grades at that time. And, but most importantly, I got into med school in Berlin and that was very well aligned with my idea of becoming a bohemian because I thought Berlin is this city where yeah, you can have an exciting um, life. And um, I really enjoyed my student life in Berlin med school was kind of tedious and boring especially in the beginning and i remember many nights where i would wake up at 4 a.m in the morning and pace around my apartment and think oh my god what have i done this is not for me i um, but i always came to the conclusion that i had already invested so much that it was too late to drop out and concluded that i would just finish med school and then decide again what to do with my life and then I had one class, I think it was the fourth or fifth year of med school. It was a class on fMRI in psychiatry. And I was blown away. This, this was by far the most intellectual thing that I had encountered in, in, in medicine. And retrospectively, I think one important factor was the professor who was teaching the class because he was not only a psychiatrist, but he was also this kind of intellectual figure who uh, was an author. And he also had this uh, literary event series in one of the coolest clubs of Berlin. So I was naturally drawn to him. And um, uh, what he was telling us was, I found that extremely fascinating, this technology that allows you to look into the brain while people are having emotions. and Um, thoughts. And to me, this seemed like a perfect way to um, now understand um, basically what makes us human to understand like our subjective experiences. So I walked up to him after the class and asked him how I could do this. And um, he directed me towards the right people. And I started um, writing a doctoral thesis at the Department of Psychiatry at Charity in Berlin.
0: So it was a very immediate process, you know, going to this lecture, Hearing about this fascinating topic and deciding you wanted to pivot to research.
1: Yeah, I guess at that time it wasn't. I really had no idea about like that research was a career path. I just wanted to do this. I just wanted to do fMRI and uh, yeah, do uh, brain imaging. And um, I think uh, only later it became obvious to me that this was actually something you could do during your life. I mean, I was in med school, so I was basically focused on medicine and thinking about becoming a physician rather than um, thinking about research. Um, But I think then, I mean, of course, um, I I really enjoyed my my doctoral thesis. So um, basically what we did, we, um, so my thesis was on uh, pharmacological and genetic influences on dopaminergic modulation of uh, different brain processes. Uh, And we used fMRI to um, measure brain responses during reward and also during working memory and Um, then um, we did this in both patients with schizophrenia and compared them to controls but we also did this in uh, healthy individuals that had um, different um, and and related their brain responses to uh, polymorphism in a gene that encodes for uh, a enzyme that is important for dopamine breakdown and what we found was that um, people with presumably genetically determined higher dopamine levels, they actually had stronger responses to very abstract cues that indicated a reward. And I was again really intrigued by by this because um, I think what I found uh, fascinating about this is that something so um, biological as a polymorphism, so basically a base pair in the DNA, relates to these, on the other hand, subjective uh, yeah, experiences of how you react to a reward. Um, and although now, nowadays, I think we know that these genetic and uh, neuroimaging studies are not um, as easy and as straightforward as they seem to be at that time. Um, I think this this fascination, this, this stayed with me, this fascination of how to map a subjective experience onto something very biological in the brain. So
0: that's fascinating. And was that a discovery that you came across quite linearly? Did you come up with a hypothesis, perform the experiment, and that was what came out? Or was it a bit more of a messy process? No, it was completely <laughs> messy. So actually, uh, looking back, it was um, kind of
1: ahead of its time. Um, at, the, the, at the department, we were doing, um, I think what would now be called team science. So it was a big umbrella project where um, we had different tasks and we we would um, scan different patient populations and also different healthy controls um with these tasks so we would meet once a week and sign up for scanning these people and then everyone would get their portion of data and uh, analyze it and uh, basically that's was that was my my doctoral thesis and then of course during these analysis I would um or depending on the data I would get I would I would come up with my hypothesis and um yeah f- finish this project so, so it was a
0: really collaborative environment it,
1: it was very collaborative yeah um so um I, I actually I wasn't really aware of that at the time that but that's the first time i I did science and i thought that was the way it was done in these big um yeah groups basically i mean there were 20 or 30 people in these in these meetings um, and we would share everything between them
0: was that your experience when you then later shifted to postdoctoral work or did you encounter a a very new environment um i mean it was similar so um before so basically
1: i I didn't go straight into uh, postdoctoral work because um so I finished my doctoral thesis, and then I finished uh, med school, and um, I was wondering what to do now. And I was offered uh, to stay on as a resident at the same psychiatry department, and I happily accepted because already during the last years of med school, I had discovered my Laugh for medicine, I guess. Um, as, I think as soon as I started to work with patients, I really enjoyed um, doing this, and s- especially um, my psychiatry rotation, I had um, deeply enjoyed that. So I, um, yeah, started my my residency, my specialization, and um, I think uh, I, I didn't really think about research at the time. So, but what I found during my during my um, specialization is that. I became more and more interested in psychosis and that was triggered through my experiences with people having um, psychotic symptoms. Um, so I think one of the first patients I ever saw, um, she uh, was a person who suddenly had started to uh, believe that there were cameras in her bedroom and that these cameras would broadcast on the internet. Um, and it turned out that she was experiencing the first episode of uh, what later then uh, turned out to be multiple sclerosis, and I was again really, really struck by how a very biological or more or less defined biological process, such as an immune response against the brain, can trigger these very bizarre and subjective symptoms of having a yeah a delusion basically about um, yeah what's what's going on in the world, and I think the more and more patients I saw, although. Often we did not find any biological cause. Um, I mean, in most of the cases, we don't find a biological cause. But um, I think the more and more patients I saw, what I re- gradually rediscovered is what many psychiatrists before me had discovered, which is that these very bizarre symptoms, they kind of co occur in, in pattern, in clusters, and in patterns that started, that made psychiatrists to come up with diagnosis, basically. Mm. Um, And I really wanted to understand why, for instance, hallucinations and delusions, which on the one hand it's people hearing voices, on the other hand, they suddenly think that, uh, yeah, the world is after them, and why these things uh, co-occur so often. And I came across a paper by um, Paul Fletcher and Chris Frith in 2008, Um, it's called uh, Perceiving is Believing, A Bayesian perspective on the positive symptoms of schizophrenia and that was really an important paper for me because the paper puts forward the idea that these diverse symptoms of psychosis, they can all be explained by one fundamental alteration in the brain which is an um, abnormal um, process, abnormal inferencing process. Um, And so the idea is that in psychosis, people start to not properly integrate new incoming information, and as a result, they start to rely more on on their internal models of the world, and they suddenly start to, um, yeah, rely more on expectations when they have perceptions, but also when they have beliefs, and that makes them to perceive what they expect, so to have hallucinations, but also to stick and hold on to their to their strange beliefs, um, and um, yeah, I really wanted to study that, but. There was no clear path for doing research while you were doing your residency at that time it was i didn't even know the word clinician scientist existed i think and um i was very lucky because there was um one um colleague who had just joined uh, the department philip sterzer who was about to start his own group and he asked me whether i wanted to do a, po- a part-time postdoc in his lab while still um, also, uh, moving forward with my specialization, my clinical training, um, and yeah, that that's how I ended up doing this uh, postdoc during my clinical training, and um, yeah, yeah, joined his lab, and um, yeah, started to study to focus more on psychosis.
0: So this paper that talks about the inability of people experiencing psychosis to integrate new information and relying more on expectation—did you read that and immediately relate that to your own experience as a clinician? Did that make sense based on the interactions you were having with patients? Yeah, I
1: think it made a lot of intuitive sense to me, um, and what I. F- Found so appealing was this kind of providing an overarching theoretical framework. I mean, it's, it's a theoretical paper, there's no, it's, it's, a, it's a review paper, but providing the theoretical framework that then generates testable hypotheses. And I, after reading the paper, I, I, immediately came up with hypothesis that I wanted to test. And that's what I then um, was able to do um, in this postdoc. So, um, yeah, it was a kind of uh, exciting way to come up with your next project.
0: Yeah, serendipitous moment. So what were these hypotheses that you ended up testing in your postdoc? So. The, the, the one hypothesis is very,
1: very related to what I just said. It's the hypothesis that people with psychosis, they rely more strongly on expectations when they when they when they have perceptions. Um, and um, we tested this in, in uh, both uh, people with uh, with psychosis, but also people without psychosis who had a tendency towards psychotic experiences. And what we found was very much in line with that. We found that um, when we we used some visual stimuli that, and we we gave people um, glasses and told them that these glasses would influence the perception of these visual stimuli, and we found that people who had uh, a tendency towards psychotic experiences, they um, they really um, relied more strongly on this, and they believed this more, and they perceived the stimulus more. Um, in the way that they were, uh, that we told them that they would believe it. So um, that confirmed our hypothesis. But um, what we also found when we did a different kind of um, manipulation to induce expectations, so basically we just showed the same stimulus again and again um, with the idea that this would generate some kind of expectations of seeing the same thing again. Um, we found, um, surprisingly, that people with more psychotic experiences, they relied less strongly on this kind of expectations. Um, and this was kind of surprising and we thought a lot about this and um, our interpretation was that um, maybe what is happening maybe we cannot talk uh, generally about expectations there are obviously different kinds of expectations so some of them are really automatic and not consciously accessible and this is probably the the kind of expectations that we found to be um, lowered in in people with psychotic experiences and so maybe um, in psychosis people don't use these automatic um, expectations so strongly and that as a result their perception becomes very unstable Um, and then what in compensation, um, they have to start to rely more on their internal model and more on these expectations that are more um, consciously um, accessible. And um, so um, this might explain both why people start to have weird beliefs and bizarre beliefs and delusions, but it might then also explain why these beliefs become so persistent and um, do not change in the face of uh, contradictory evidence. Um, And we tested, we went on to test this hypothesis in different uh, populations and uh, patients with schizophrenia and um, also expanded this framework in um, different domains of expectations and cognitive processes. And um, yeah, it was quite um, a a, a robust finding. We we kept finding this
0: again and again. Um, So just to check that I'm I'm understanding, um, you gave uh, these people some glasses and said that they were likely to shape or alter the perception of the stimuli that you were presenting them with, but they didn't. Exactly. And this expectation, the expectation of their perception changing, was something that you observed more in people that had a tendency towards psychotic episodes. Exactly. So there's almost like top-down, um, yeah, the, the conscious expectation of some about to, them about to perceive something different. Yes. Whereas in the latter experiment, um, you kept presenting them with the same image, probably generating this sort of like latent and more implicit subconscious expectation that they'll continue to see the same image and they relied on that less. Exactly. So they, they didn't have that solid expectation. Yes. So what you're suggesting is that um, people who experience psychotic episodes, um, they don't necessarily rely as much on the uh, subconscious, like sensory information coming in, like the, the yeah. real world information, but instead rely on this internal model that they've created. Exactly. That's so um, interesting. <laughs> And I mean, I think it's actually we all do
1: this. It's not it's not a pathological process. Um, we all rely on our internal models when we perceive. It's just that we do this to different degrees. For instance, if we walk um, through a forest in plain daylight, we probably look more around and we, we hear a, a, a crack, but we look and we don't see anything and we just ignore it and it's fine. We just hear a crack. But then um, uh, when it's when we do the same at night, we don't have the same amount of sensory information and we hear the same crack and then we look and we, may, might, we think we see something and we now come to the conclusion, oh, maybe there was an animal, a, whatever a wolf, depending on where you're walking through the forest. Um, And we now kind of impose more of our internal model, our internal expectations on the the sensory evidence. So we all do this in different degrees, depending on the situation. But uh, the idea is that in psychosis, um, somehow people do this too much um, and maybe because their sensory information processing somehow breaks down so they kind of need to impose more structure on the world by um, yeah, relying more on their internal model and that can explain both delusions and hallucinations. Um, so that's the idea.
0: And you say that this was a very robust finding, so you did further experiments that further reinforced it. Yeah,
1: I mean, we, we, we did a series of studies where we tested different kinds of expectations and we, we different kinds of cognitive processes, and um, we found that uh, psychotic experiences showed showed these phenotypes and these very simple tasks, simple uh, perceptual tasks. Um, and um, yeah, so uh, this was uh, going well. I, I, I made progress on that, um, but... Um, I also kept working as a clinician, and I think like, there was a new feeling that I started to experience when thinking about psychosis. I was not only fascinated anymore, but I also started to feel some frustration, um, and that's because I saw many patients with the same kind of story. And so just to give you an example, so just imagine you're in your 20s, um, you just finished your... PhD or you're you're about to finish your PhD you just moved in with your partner the first time everything goes well but then suddenly something shifts you don't sleep well You, you hear your your neighbors are whispering through the wall they say things about you they say nasty things about you and then suddenly you hear voices you come to see me as your psychiatrist and you ask me hey what's what's wrong and what can I do? And I'm like, um, yeah, so we have a name, it's called psychosis, and we think we can give you some drugs that block your dopamine system, uh, and then you might get better, but we actually don't fully understand why too much dopamine should lead to these why, why it makes you hear voices. And also um, there's a good chance that even if we give you these drugs that you will not be able to continue your PhD and you will not be able to maintain your relationship with your partner because that's what we observe in many patients. So I really got frustrated with my lack of knowledge and my inability to give like a satisfactory explanation to my patients and also kind of um, explain even like how the medications I was prescribing them work um, because we still don't know because all of them were discovered by serendipity. Um, So yeah, that kind of led to my next step in my career, which um, after finishing and and it was kind of unusual. So I I was finishing my um, residency, but I also had my first grants. I had two postdocs that I was supervising. So I was kind of getting into this career of being a clinician scientist, but I, I really was not um, yeah, satisfied by what I was doing and the explanations I could I could um, deliver. So I decided to um, go and do a research um, fellowship um, after my uh, specialization. And um, I really wanted to understand the biology and especially this question, what dop- why too much dopamine would lead to these very perceptual symptoms. And we had shown that people with psychosis, they have these very quantifiable phenotypes in, in these perceptual tasks. So I thought, okay, maybe we can use this and do this in mice and take advantage of all the amazing technologies that have come out of uh, neuroscience in, in the past, uh, past decades, basically, um, such as optogenetics to really understand why too much dopamine leads to these psychosis uh, psychotic perceptions. Um, And I was very lucky to, um, yeah, I I had no idea how to do this. I had no idea about academia. I had no idea about US academia. So I basically randomly wrote some applications and then went on a road trip with my family to do some lab visits. and. I was very lucky that uh, Adam Keppich at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, he invited me to join his lab and um, together we set out to, to tackle this question. And I think it's a perfect example of how different backgrounds can really Add up to something new um, because I had this kind of clinical view and I came from psychosis research and he had a lot of expertise in um, still has a lot of expertise in um, rodent cognition and how to model um, yeah, cognition in rodents. Um, so, yeah, together we set out to st- study hallucinations, uh, in this case, in uh,
0: in mice, or at least to model hallucinations in mice. This was going to be my next question. Yeah. So obviously hallucinations are such like subjective experiences, you know, they manifest in everyone differently. And it's, you know, about the, how they're experiencing the world. How can you tell how a mouse is experiencing the world and how can you model hallucinations in that system? Yeah. So basically,
1: um, We cannot, but the same applies to other humans. We also never really know for sure whether another human is hallucinating. But what we can do is we can um, try to um, model a process or to, to, to engage a process that we think is effective in hallucinations. And so how we went about this is really very motivated by the previous work I did, where we found that these very, um, yeah, these phenotypes and perceptual tasks relate to psychosis. So we, we thought, okay, what is a hallucination? And a hallucination is basically a percept that is not triggered by an external stimulus, but it, that is nevertheless experienced with the same confidence as a, as a quote-unquote real stimulus. And so what we did, we thought, okay, this is something we can model in a task. We can, we can evoke this kind of percept in a task, And so we came up with this auditory detection test where we play tones or we don't play tones and we train mice to tell us whether they hear a tone or they don't hear a tone. Um, And then what we also train them to do is to tell us how confident they are. And this is kind of sounds crazy, but it's actually a very simple, beautiful idea. We we just make them wait for their reward. Um, so usually when they, get the, when they get their choice right, so when they correctly report hearing a tone or not hearing a tone, we give them a little drop of water. And now what we do, we don't give it right away, but we just make them wait. And so this has the effect that the mouse never knows whether and when a reward will come and it has to make an active decision how much time it is really willing to invest. And what we now get, we have a task where we can define Um, We can find instances where the mice do not hear, uh, where we do not play tones, but the mice hear tones, um, and they do so with high confidence. And so that's what we call hallucination-like perception.
0: So, in this particular task, you are playing tones to to mice. Is there a background noise? There is a background noise to filter out, like the um, the external noise. And then they indicate by waiting at a particular like nose port to whether or not they think that they've heard a tone. And the longer they wait, the more confident they are. So- yeah, so
1: they report whether they heard a tone or didn't hear a tone um, by either going to the right or to the left, and then they wait there at the right or at the left, um, depending on how confident they are that there was a tone or that there wasn't a tone.
0: And in instances where there wasn't a tone, but they report that there was a tone with high confidence, that's yes. what you are describing as the the model of hallucination. Exactly, that's what we use. When they're performing these tasks, what proportion of trials do they have that outcome on? Um, so they have uh, this.
1: Uh, they have around fifteen percent of false alarms, and then of course confidence is is gradual. Um, it's uh, depends on where you have the cutoff. But they do have quite a few trials. So if you look at the distributions, they do have trials where they are very confident and they did not hear the tone. Um, And what is interesting, so because it's a very simple task, we can do the same in people. And Mm -hmm. um, so we did that and we then um, did did an online task. And um, when I did the task myself, it's really um, striking how, I mean, I had these false alarms with high confidence and it really feels like a real tone, like hearing a real tone. It um, feels like a a very, uh, yeah, like a hallucination-like percept. um. So, um, and when we did this in people, we, we found um, that people who had more uh, psychotic experiences in their life, more hallucinations in their daily life, they also would have more of these um, hallucination-like perceptions in the task, which um, is kind of a good indication that maybe our task engages some processes that are shared or affected in uh, hallucinations.
0: So you observe the same... Uh, responses essentially in mice and in people and therefore you could extrapolate that there might be similar like neural circuits exactly in
1: yeah and we also gave mice and um, for instance we gave them ketamine which is known to induce psychotic experiences in humans and we also found that this pushed mice towards having more of these hallucination-like perceptions so um, it's basically how we validated our model um, and tried to become more confident that this model might tell us something that is relevant
0: for hallucinations. Oh, that's so interesting. A, a very brief aside, just something I'm curious about. How common are hallucinations and psychotic experiences in the population? Yeah, that's a
1: super interesting topic. Um, so we usually think of psychotic experiences as something that is kind of limited to to, to disease, to, to psychosis, to uh, schizophrenia, for instance. But actually, um, there seems to be, uh, yeah, uh, a a wide variation of these experiences in the general population. And I think many of us can relate to that because they have had some kind of hallucination at some point in their lives. I think what many parents experience is when uh, they have little newborn babies, um, and the baby's in a different room. They will hear um, their baby cry, although the baby's perfectly asleep. And uh, this is a very potent sensory experience, and it can be reinforced by having a more noisy background, like um, people hear that when they have their uh, air conditioning running and uh, things like that. Um, so, I, so this kind of experience, some people have these more often, and um, it's uh, it's 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 gradual. It depends. I mean, where you have the cutoff. So if if you use questionnaire. Where you ask for these kinds of experiences, you find that most people don't have a lot of them. But then it's it's basically a, a tail distribution. So you find that there are some people who don't have a diagnosis of uh, of any um, psychiatric um, illness, but they still have a high degree of these um, of these experiences, as many as um, psychotic inpatients would have. And interestingly, these people they have a higher risk for then getting uh, uh, a psychiatric diagnosis later. They also um, have often So they also have uh, often uh, um, uh, relatives who have psychotic disorders. So there seems to be some, um, yeah, overlap between this pathological and non-pathological hallucinations.
0: Yeah, no, that's very interesting. Do you think also relying on these questionnaires and self-reports of people, like saying whether or not they've had these psychotic episodes or experiences, will people always be aware because if there's like as you were saying before like perceptual uncertainty and noisy background and also the expectation of maybe your baby about to about to be crying you you might not always realize that you're having a, a hallucinatory experience yeah no that's right and uh, i mean we can
1: all, only ask people like what we would ask any person who's presenting uh, to me as a psychiatrist which is yeah, do you sometimes hear things that others cannot hear um, and then this kind of question. So yeah, we have to rely on on them to be aware of that their experiences are somewhat different or strange. Um but I think usually it's also the case even like even in in, in psychosis people um know that something is different that, that these experiences are, are not like normal experiences and and they also notice that they are maladaptive or that they start to suffer because of them or that they startle because they hear something so um i think uh, it's a similar challenge in, in yeah both in healthy and in, in, in healthy individuals but also in people who are uh, seeking treatment because of their experiences yeah
0: of course i found what you said before interesting about defining hallucinations as um perceptual experiences that that aren't there, but with a high degree of confidence. But what you just described was people who are having these perceptual experiences that aren't there, but are aware that something's wrong and that they're, they're not real. So I suppose that's that's having low confidence in the fact that those experiences are happening to them. Yeah. But perceiving them as if they're real. Exactly. So I think this confidence aspect. Um,
1: so, I mean, we are talking really about perceptual confidence and um, and I think People notice that something is off, um, but it's still a perceptual experience. Um, it's not just having an error or something. And again, I think this is also something that is gradual. Like it's not yes or no. It's not being confident or not confident. And uh, my my, uh, I think my view is that the more the deeper you get into psychosis, probably the the less. Uh, the less clear the, the distinction between like reality and your, your own your generated percepts um, becomes, and the, the more confident you will become in your own percepts. But um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's evolving um, over the course of, of, of psychosis and um, depending on the situation. Um, but in general, I think it is different from just having a misperception or an error because somehow it is very perceptual and there is this perceptual
0: confidence to this. So going back to this perceptual confidence task, you found that um, mice and people in uh, the equivalent versions of the task reported a comparable number of um, these hallucination-like trials. Uh, did you then start digging into what's actually going on in the brain while is happening yeah so that was then
1: i could finally address the <laughs> pressing question what what about dopamine why why are we giving antidopaminergic drugs to our patients and so um what we did we first measured dopamine and what we found is that um and high levels of dopamine made mice more likely to actually experience such a um, hallucination-like perception. And, and then also when we stimulated dopamine release using optogenetics, we found that we could actually induce these hallucination-like perceptions. And what was really um, remarkable, we could um, prevent this if we treated mice with a haloperidol, which is an antipsychotic, antidopaminergic drug. Um, so. And when we did some um, analysis and some computational models, we found that uh, one model that explained the data very well was a model where dopamine seemed to encode expectations about the upcoming stimulus. Um, So our idea or our interpretations of these results is that dopamine might encode some aspects of these expectations and thereby too much dopamine might kind of lead to stronger expectations that then shape perception into conformity with expectations and leads to hallucinations. Um, And I think this was very exciting because to me this provided like a a clear neural circuit hypothesis or a neural circuit explanation for for something as long standing as the dopamine hypothesis of of psychosis. Um, But what I also was very excited about, I, I feel now we really have this framework, this, this way of how we can um, biologically study something that might be relevant to hallucinations in a mouse. Um, so um, that's uh, basically what leads to the next chapter in my life, which is uh, my current position. I, I just started um, my lab at the Francis Crick Institute in London. Um, I'm a clinical uh, science group leader here. and. Um, We are using this framework to now um, really get deeper into the brain and into the neural circuits that govern psychosis.
0: So just very briefly going back to this idea of creating a a a model of uh, psychosis in or hallucination-like perceptions in animals. How did you come up with the idea for this task? Because it's a very elegant, very simple task to create this model. How did the idea come into a being?
1: I think it was influenced by my background in using perceptual tasks in uh, in uh, humans, um, and we had done some experiments. It was all in the visual um, in the visual domain, but we had done some experiments. Other people had done some experiments where they looked at detection, um, visual detection. Of auditory detection uh, in uh, relation to psychosis. And there was this uh, body of work that suggested that people with psychosis, they have more false perceptions um, in these tasks. Uh, but then also there was a kind of different stream of evidence that also suggested that people with psychosis were more confident in errors in all kinds of errors, and it was more or less putting these two things together, together with Adam's kind of expertise in, in, in confidence and in, in rodent cognition, um, that yeah, it's it's basically an auditory detection task with confidence reports, um, yeah, and uh, it turned out to be a model that uh, relates to to these psychotic
0: experiences in humans. That must have been such an exciting moment or like period of your life, realizing that this like uh, trying this effort to try and come up with a, a mechanism, circuit mechanism, biological substrate to explain these subjective perceptions in the patients that you were working with. You actually had that, yeah. and yeah, no, that must have been an incredible moment. For
1: you. Yeah, I mean there were many many obstacles on the way that I'm not like talking about, but um, it took quite a while to train the mice, and I, like it, in the beginning it was not obvious that mice would be able to do the task, and also with the dopamine might our hypothesis was not, I mean, we had the hypothesis that too much dopamine would lead to, would somehow relate to this, but um, it was not exactly, what what we found was not exactly what we expected um, because um, when I first analyzed the data, I actually did not see any difference between the dopamine and uh, and uh, before false alarms and, and other perceptions. And the reason for this is that the differences we found were really in the dopamine baseline, um, which uh, is very interesting, but, we did not think about that before we did these experiments. So there were a lot of like uh, points of disappointment and then <laughs> equally like uh, points of excitement. So um, I think that's probably like a good description of research in general. Like, you can <laughs> just go from being very excited to being very disappointed to being very excited again, and then at some point you settle somewhere in the middle.
0: Yeah, the highs and the lows when yeah. things work out and they don't. How do you deal with those moments of disappointment when things feel like
1: they're not working? Well, I'm usually just getting very. Uh, I just want to find out what's going on, so it's kind of I'm not even realizing that I'm disappointed because I get really into things and into the weeds and really yeah want to want to understand why this is not working. Um, but I think a general strategy I have, and I feel really privileged for yeah having this experience uh, working with patients because. Um, obviously, there are many moments where, uh, yeah, I doubt uh, whether what I'm doing is the right thing to do and um, whether I'm the right person to do the thing. And um, so my, my general strategy is to just um, think, concentrate on, on the big picture and think about why I started doing this and um, think about a few patients that I can remember and think about their parents. And that always brings me back on track and helps me to just keep going. And I think the, the important part here is for me, I, I, I defined failure for myself as stopping to try so so that means also like as long as i try i'm i'm succeeding in the moment and um i feel that's a very good uh way to just uh keep going um so i guess the secret is just keep going (laughs) it's just not a very insightful um secret but and while keep going like while keeping going i think one important thing is i is trying to enjoy the science like the work because it i I deeply enjoy many aspects like of of the actual science i really enjoy um yeah processing tissue and looking at (laughs) looking at things under the microscope um but also just analyzing data i can get lost in these things and um just try to get lost in analysis if if things are really bad (laughs) so
0: yeah i have often thought that actually that you know those moments of coming up with analysed data that answers your hypothesis. There are actually quite a few and far between. You know, a lot of doing a PhD or a postdoc or working on research is the process of collecting data, analysing data, coming up with your hypotheses. And you've really got to enjoy the process to make the big picture worth it, essentially. Because otherwise, you've got to enjoy it day to day. Otherwise, getting to those big moments is going to be incredibly challenging. Uh, So you think that the balance you've got between research and clinical work provides you with both the motivation or the, the understanding of the big picture and why and like the reason to keep going and also allows you to satisfy sort of the, like the biological itch, like the yeah. the question of why is this happening? Why am I yeah. seeing what I'm seeing? Yeah. That sounds like an excellent balance. Yeah. Are no. you continuing to do clinical work now you're a group leader? Uh, yes, hopefully soon. It's
1: uh, a little difficult to um, interne- to move internationally <laughs> as I'm a sure. physician <laughs> repeatedly. But um, yeah, I hope uh, to get back. So my position here at the, the Crick is really unique because it is um, a position for clinician scientists that really want to do like have a strong side on the basic science uh, side so um, but then also want to keep practicing in, in some form so I hope to do uh, one day a week uh, once I've gone through all the bureaucratic hurdles for that
0: yeah of course how's setting up the lab going at the moment because you you said you're very new yeah. to this position
1: I mean it's great it's uh um, it's very exciting it's uh, I just had the first uh, lab member start, and we are building our team, and uh, we're doing the things the way we think we should do the things, um, which is very exciting and satisfying. Um, it's also obviously terrifying, <laughs> because suddenly I have this, uh, yeah, responsibility for for others. I, I think uh, it's just like a new aspect of of, of things, but um yeah i think in general it's uh it's an overall positive experience obviously things are slow we need to set uh, up these animal experiments which just takes time but um yeah overall uh, i'm very happy (laughs) at this stage of my life
0: so can you tell me a bit about an exciting project that's going on in your lab at the moment
1: oh yeah i mean we haven't really started like any exciting project but i can tell you like So one part of the lab is really um, trying now to figure out like the the upstream mechanisms of of the neural circuits that we started to to uncover um, and really looking at uh, neuronal populations that modulate dopamine release um, to see whether we can then I mean in the end maybe if we understand these mechanisms find new treatments that target other mechanisms uh, other than dopamine. Um, But one other exciting angle that we're trying to take um, is um, so although now we have this way to quantify experiences that are similar to psychosis in rodents, we are st- still very unsatisfied with um, causal models, etiological models of psychosis in rodents. So it's really hard for me to um, yeah, find a way to induce psychosis in rodents in a, in a naturalistic way um, that is similar to what is happening in, in people. So um, I started to think about this problem and i think one issue here is that most of the factors that we have identified to be associated with psychosis they for instance genetic variations but also environmental factors they all um, are significantly associated but they only contribute to the risk for psychosis to a small degree and even if we find factors that increase the risk by a higher degree we still do not really know when we should look in a mouse because psychosis happens sometime in life and we don't really know when this is so um i uh, the the way to to overcome this challenge um, to me is to find way uh, find um, endpoints common endpoints where all these factors converge and I think there's a lot of evidence that the immune system uh, might be such a such an endpoint and so what we are trying to do is to basically model um, yeah model immune responses that we find in some people that experience psychotic symptoms and uh, model them in mice to um, to get yeah, to a causal model and then understand and how different immune mechanisms might, might lead up to psychosis.
0: So what is the evidence that there's a relationship between the immune system and psychosis? Yeah, so um, there, there are different lines
1: of evidence. So one um, line of evidence is that, for instance, autoimmune um, disorders and uh, psychotic disorders, they, they, they uh, co-occur or there's an epidemiological association between the two. Um, so if you have an autoimmune disorder, the risk for psychotic disorders is higher and the other way around. Um, also, um, there is, so some of the Genetic risk that has been identified maps to genes or to genetic regions that seem to be important for immune regulation. Um, there's also um, there are some cases where where viral infections can trigger psychosis, um, especially. And it's called post-viral um, psychosis. So it doesn't. it's a little bit similar to what we see in, in COVID sometimes with long COVID. So it's not directly triggered by the viral infections, but it occurs with some delay. And, and there were even some co- uh, cases with COVID. It's rare, but there were some um, acute uh, psychotic episodes that were triggered by um, COVID and then started uh, a few weeks after. Um, so, um, and then there are some uh, fascinating case reports from and that's just, that's really, not good evidence because it's just case reports, but still it's fascinating. And so case reports from people who received stem cell transplants. So um, there's one case report from a person who had schizophrenia, that was treatment resistant and then received a stem cell transplant from a donor who hadn't didn't have any uh, schizophrenia. And uh, basically, a stem cell transplant transfers one immune system to another another person. And so after receiving this healthy immune system, this this other person um, stopped having any symptoms of schizophrenia and was basically cured from from, uh, his symptoms of uh, the disease. And um, this is even more fascinating together with another case report where a person who did not have any any mental health issues this person needed a stem cell transplant and the only available donor was his brother who happened to have a a long history of schizophrenia and so after receiving the stem cells from his brother with schizophrenia this person also started having um, symptoms that were similar to schizophrenia so um, again suggesting that the immune system in some cases might harbor the cause of schizophrenia Um, and um, yeah so we are uh, trying to model this and um, yeah, that's. Uh, I think uh, it's still in very early stages, so I cannot really uh, describe any any specific project here. But I have one immunologist who uh, joined my lab, and we're together. Um, yeah, working on
0: this. So, are you interested in looking at how the immune system, uh, or modulation of the immune system, could be used to model psychosis better in rodents? Or either or, um, uh, investigating the role of the immune system in psychosis and its potential like it, for, as a substrate for treatment. Yeah, I
1: think it's both. I mean, it's uh, kind of informing each other. It's uh, mm-hmm. course, oh, I, In the end, I'm, I'm really interested in the biological mechanisms of psychosis and with biological mechanisms both in the brain, but also, of course, in the immune system. So, um, yeah.
0: Now, obviously, you're very much in the earlier stages of these projects, but do you have a sense of how you would like to feel, see the field of, psycho- of uh, psychiatry develop in the next few years? Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I hope that we're getting
1: at some point to mechanistic treatments. Um, and I think we, we, we are in a better place now. I, I mean, some it's easy to get into some, yeah, to fall back into some Uh, attitude of uh, nothing works and we don't make any progress. Um, But I think if we remember, the same was true for cancer not so long ago. There there, there was a long time where there was a lot of cancer research and nothing had really progressed. Um, But then there were some breakthroughs and um, now many cancers are are really treatable, not all of them, but some of them, breast cancer is a good example, survival times for breast cancer have just gone through the roof and it's not this fatal diagnosis anymore that it was even, I I think, 20 years ago. So um, I hope that something similar will happen in, in psychiatry and my hope is really to yeah, by understanding the mechanisms um, that we now can understand much better because we have much better tools for, for dissecting the neural circuitry of the brain um, and for also dissecting things like the immune system. Uh, I really hope that we can get to this breakthrough where we now develop new treatments based on a mechanistic
0: understanding. That will be a hugely exciting outcome. And I'm sure the projects that are going on in your lab will, will be eminently, will be like hugely invaluable in pushing that forward. I'm aware that we're almost out of time. Um, so first of all, thank you so much for agreeing to speak thank today. You. And uh, lastly, if you weren't doing neuroscience and weren't in medicine, what do you think you would be doing? Well, I guess I answered the question at the very beginning.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this idea of being some uh, intellectual bohemian is still very appealing to me. So I would—I don't know how I would make money, but um, I don't know whether bohemians think about making money, but. I, I see myself in, in that uh, space, just thinking and writing and uh, discussing with other people about the world and about humanity.
0: It sounds excellent. Well, Berlin will always be there, so. <laughs> maybe one day. All right. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. Thank you.